Welcome to Cyclopod, showcasing work by early career geoscientists that is of interest to the cyclostatigraphic community. This podcast is made possible thanks to financial support of the International Subcommission on Timescale Calibration. Hi there, welcome to the fifth episode of Cyclopod. My name is David of Leeschauer, and today our guest is Anna Joy Drury. Anna Joy is a Marie Sklodowska Curry Research Fellow at University College London in the United Kingdom. And Anna Joy is really one of the most careful and rigorous stratigraphers that I know. And I have the right to say such a thing because we worked together at Marum in Bremen, Germany for several years. When Anna Joy looks at a deep sea sediment core, you can be sure that there's no detail that goes unnoticed. Her research focus is on neogene climate change and paleoceanography, and she sailed on an IDP expedition that drilled in the Indian as well as in the Pacific Ocean. However, today, we're mostly going to talk about the Atlantic Ocean. So Anna Joy, very, very welcome to the show. I'm really happy we have you here, and congratulations with your new paper in Climate of the Past, in which you use the legacy ODP site 1264 on Walvis Ridge of Namibia to describe 30 million years of climate change the waxing and waning of ice sheets and changes to the carbon cycle. Can you tell why Walvis Ridge has been so important for scientific ocean drilling? Hi, David. Um, thanks very much for the invite. It's really exciting to take part in this, um, this new initiative. Um, yeah, so uh, Walvis Ridge um, and ODP site 1264, uh, it was drilled as part of Leg 208 in 2003. And uh, this expedition really tried to cover the, the entire uh, Cenozoic in a continuous fashion, um, and it did so with uh, six sites, of which 1264 was one of the shallowest sites on the top of the ridge, so it recovered continuous carbonate material without too much dissolution or minimal dissolution influence. And the idea was that they wanted to try and recover as much as possible post-Eocene Oligocene transition when Antarctica first glaciated through to the present. So they, yeah, they recovered about 30 million years of sediments over 300 meters, 320 meters. And yeah, it's one of the earliest records that spans this entire interval um, that we have. And even though we've had lots of uh, ocean drilling expeditions since, there's not many expeditions that have recovered the same type of material at one location. That's pretty, yeah, pretty cool site. Pretty cool indeed. And if I understand it correctly, there were already two important data sets, Delta ITNO, Benthic isotope data sets available from Site 1264, one for the Oligocene and one for the Pliopleistocene. And so there was a big gap in the middle, roughly corresponding to the Miocene and the early Pliocene. And so you came along and you closed that gap in between. And the result is a whopping 30 million year long continuous record. Yeah, exactly. So there were um, two uh, papers, one by uh, Liebrandstahl in 2016, which covered the oldest 30 million years uh, with isotopes and, and XRF carbonate records. Uh, and then there was a study by Bellatel in 2014, which covered the youngest 5 million years with uh, isotopes only. And um, what we did as a big collaboration with a number of research groups is we uh, aim to collect uh, the XRF data in order to estimate carbonate content from that XRF day, so that's X-ray fluorescence core scanning. Um, and uh, it's a non-destructive technique, um, which gives you very high resolution data at 
relatively minimal effort and without destroying the core material, which is always, always a good thing. Um, and yeah, so we coll collected this data for the youngest 17 million years to integrate this with the older record from Lipontata um, to give us a continuous 300 meter plus record. And this gave us the chance to sort of knit together with the existing, existing stratigraphies and existing astrochronologies uh, to try and firstly generate a continuous age and depth framework for this location, which we hope will really help um, uh, future studies on paleoceanography at this location. So it's sort of there as a, as a nice resource. And then also to look at how carbonate deposition changed at this location since the early uh, Oligocene um, in relation to some of the biggest climate changes that we uh, know happened over that time. I'm sure it will be a, a legacy record and widely used in, in the paleoceanography field. What makes your work fascinating and a joy is, is that you always show your wiggly lines on top of or next to a core photograph or a core photograph composite. And these pictures look truly amazing. Can you reveal your secret? How do you make them? Yeah, so we use um, some software that uh, I helped uh, develop with uh, Roy Wilkins and Thomas Vesholt and a few others called Code for Ocean Drilling Data or, or COD for short. Um, and this is a sort of a software package that runs in uh, Eagle Pro, which is a sort of MATLAB-like program. Um, and the nice thing with Eagle Pro is that it can handle um, images very well as uh, matrices and, and sort of editable data. Um, what we did with the COD code is to um, generate some sort of ocean drilling targeted um, software that allows you to um, yeah, really easily integrate the different data sets that you might get from, from, a, from a deep sea core. Um, and the core images are a big, big part of that. And essentially what, what COD allows you to do is take either line scan images or these tabletop photos, which are essentially core box photos. So they take the core and they photograph the sections next to each other. Um, people who've worked on IDP and ocean drilling might be familiar with them. Um, and essentially, COD allows you to take the section images and stitch them together into one big core image, and then take multiple core images, for instance, from parallel holes, and then stitch them together along a composite section to generate uh, a composite model continuous image um, of what we think is below the seafloor. So uh, it gives you a sort of a composite image of your sedimentary succession. You can transfer it to age, you can integrate it with other sites. Um, so we had a few small gaps at 1264, we were able to splice in core images from 1265. Um, yeah, and it's uh, you can then extract lightness data and things like that from there if you, if you so wish. Or, so there's an awful lot you can do with these core images in the same way you would with a normal uh, sort of XY data set. And it's free of charge, right? Yeah, COD is free of charge. Uh, Eagle Pro, unfortunately not. They do have a, a, a trial period where you can uh, give it a test run and they have really good um, rates for students and academics, but students especially. Within those 30 million years you cover, there are so many interesting events, excursions, climatic periods and transitions that we could talk about. but one particular feature that intrigues me personally is the phase relationship between calcium carbonate content and oxygen isotopes. Basically, in the older part of your record, you have more carbonate when it's cold. But in the younger part of the record, the opposite is the case, and you have more carbonate when it's warm. Can you tell us a bit more about that? 
Yeah, so essentially in the oldest part, so uh, before 8 million years, from 8 to, to 30, essentially our carbonate was very highly controlled by eccentricity. It sh showed mostly eccentricity as, as the, the dominant driver. And uh, although we don't have isotopes across this entire interval, um, for the interval where we do between 17 and 30, um, what we saw was that this carbonate data showed uh, an in-phase relationship with the oxygen isotopes. So you had high carbonate when you had high oxygen isotopes, and as you said, sorry, high carbonate when it's colder and there may be more ice. For the youngest part, um, the carbonate showed a very different response to astronomical forcing, and the eccentricity was a lot less strong, and obliquity became a far more important driver. And if we compare, again, for this youngest period, if we compare it to the uh, oxygen isotopes, we saw, and we were really quite surprised, that actually this um, more carbonate with cooler periods didn't hold up anymore, and it was instead these higher oxygen values coincided with lower carbonate values. So colder periods, less carbonate, and all driven by obliquity. So we were really quite um, surprised by that. Uh, and although we don't have oxygen isotopes across the whole record, we think this switch occurs, or we inferred this switch occurs around 8 million years. And do you have any idea what happened on Earth? Which boundary condition changed so that that switch happened? Um, yeah, so we have a few thoughts as to why this, this phase switch occurred. And I think, you know, the, the rise of obliquity around 8 million years really holds, holds the key to that, because it's also uh, around that time in other records that I've worked on, we can see that the phase between oxygen and carbon isotopes is also antiphase, which is different to the phase that we see between carbon and oxygen isotopes in some of the preceding warmer periods. So it's really quite interesting that around 8 million years there's a lot going on in in terms of the internal phase between oxygen and carbon isotopes we also see a different phase between uh, oxygen and carbonate and i think this probably relates to the increased influence of high latitude processes at this time especially in the northern hemisphere and we think that this is related to some early northern hemisphere uh, ice sheet influences um, but also to changes in, in land use, so that after 8 million years, we see the appearance of biomes and conditions uh, that store carbon less efficiently during cold spells uh, compared to how they um, store carbon in the warmer oligo and mid-Miocene. And when I was working on this with my co-authors, I found this was a really nice crossover and linked to actually the paper uh, that you and I collaborated on that you led uh, last year on the carbon oxygen isotope shift on eccentricity timescales. So that was a, yeah, a really interesting link that we saw around the same time where in your paper we proposed that we see a rise of the high latitude influences, especially in the northern hemisphere, and then cut to 1264. It's around the same time where we see obliquity imprinting on the carbonate record and Potentially also, we infer that there's a, a switch in the phase between oxygen isotopes and carbonate. So, yeah, I think there's an awful lot going on in the late Miocene um, down to increased, yeah, increased high latitudes. That brings us to the number of the month. And this month's number is 4.29. 
4.29, that's the impact factor of climate of the past, which is the journal you published your story in. And um, 4.29 is actually a very high impact factor for this uh, journal. It's, I think, the all-time high. That's a nice reward for their open review, open science policy um, that actually the entire Copernicus uh, publishing house is maintaining. Can you comment on that? How, how, do you, how do you look at a journal like Climate of the Past? I've uh, published in Climate of the Past uh, before in 2018 or 2017, 2018. And the impact factor then was, was uh, I think, quite a bit lower. So, you know, that increase in quite a short period of time really shows that these are attractive journals um, to go for because, you know, it's very transparent and um, you can see sort of the review process. It's uh, generally, I think, also quite constructive because all of these things are open. So the the emphasis is more on providing, even if you're critical of the work, is of providing it in a constructive way rather than just shooting it down because no one's ever going to see your feedback anyway. So I think it's a, yeah, a much more transparent process. Um, the work can also uh, be utilized scientifically um, whilst it's in review. Yeah, it's, um, I think, the way forward. But, you know, I would also like to say uh, impact factors aren't really the whole story. You know, papers uh, should really be ju judged on their intrinsic value, not necessarily the, the journal they're, they're published in. Because, you know, a really nice example of this is uh, until recently, some of the uh, few uh, late Miocene isotope records that we had uh, were published by uh, Nick Shackleton. They were published in the proceedings volumes of the um, drilling expeditions uh, that Nick Shackleton was involved in. And these uh, proceedings volumes aren't indexed by the major search engines, and yet they contain some of our best isotope records of the Cenozoic. All right, so let's go back to the science now. We already talked about that phase switch between carbonate and oxygen isotopes that occurred in the late Miocene. Well, this happens at time of the infamous biogenic bloom. Can you remind us what is the biogenic bloom again? Yeah, so the um, uh, late Miocene to early Pliocene uh, biogenic bloom, which we've shortened to the LMBB, even though that doesn't quite cover the fact that it goes into the early Pliocene, but it's a bit more succinct, fits better on figures. Um, yeah, so it's a multi-million year productivity event that occurs um, in all ocean basins uh, roughly the same time during the late Miocene through to early Pliocene. And it's seen in both um, upwelling and oligotrophic areas. So there has to be uh, sort of quite some uh, different mechanisms at play to ensure that it's, it's seen in both these areas. And um, yeah, the causes aren't that well constrained, um, but essentially we think that it's down to either increased uh, nutrient input into the oceans or um, a redistribution of nutrients through uh, changes in circulation. But at 1264, it did last longer than in the Pacific, right? Yes, so we don't have a lot of, there's, we don't have a lot, there are basically only two locations where this bloom has been extraordinarily well dated. One is 1264 um, in our paper just now, and uh, the other is in the Eastern Equatorial Pacific in a paper from Lyle et al in 2019. And essentially, it's quite nice we see that these two records both have astronomical age models, and the biogenic bloom starts at approximately the same time, the uh, mass accumulation rates increase at approximately 8 million years. And there's a big peak in um, 
productivity around seven million years. Uh, the end of the bloom is a bit different. Uh, in the um, equatorial Pacific, it seems to come to an end about four or four and a half million years. Whereas in uh, 1264, it lasts and continues through until about 3.3. So there's quite a, a big difference in the end of this bloom, although it was quite remarkable how similar the, the onset was in both locations and how similar this sort of maximum was in both locations. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. And, and another thing that fascinates me about the biogenic bloom is that it occurs at the same time that Earth's system was going through a major reorganization. We talked about the phase switch earlier, mm -hmm. but we have changes in ocean circulation, monsoon intensity. We see aridification at different places uh, on our planet. There is high latitude climate cooling, the rise of the C4 plants. Do we actually know how the biogenic bloom relates to all those other events and, and, and transitions? <laughs> We've just started to scratch the surface really on this question and having two well dated records uh, for the first time from two ocean basins, one from an upwelling area, one from a much more oligotrophic area, it's really given us the chance to, to test how all of these different factors that are happening around the same time play into and relate to the, the productivity signals we see. And, um, you know, the fact that the, the onset and the peak uh, are synchronous tells us well, maybe we're looking at a one mechanism, a global mechanism, and the fact that our ending is so different might relate to, you know, uh, a different mechanism influencing the fact that there's a lot of heterogeneity in the bloom. And that also, with the lower resolution records, these have very different expressions. And of course, we can't fully constrain whether they're down to age models and things like that. But that it's clear there is a lot of heterogeneity so we can't we, we can't just rely on saying oh it's one global mechanism there have to be uh, other mechanisms with more regional influence so yeah what we what we discussed in the paper was not perhaps so increase in global nutrient input could be quite maybe a, a sort of a more global signal so there's um evidence of increased glacial activity in both northern hemisphere and potentially also the southern hemisphere so that might lead to increased nutrient input from glacial weathering it's also increased continental weathering, possibly related to Himalayan uplift, and certainly due to the intensification of uh, the East Asian monsoon, which has quite a lot of evidence for, um, around sort of eight, eight to seven million years. Uh, you mentioned the C4 plants. Um, so these are a key indicator. They do well in arid conditions, uh, and there's a lot of evidence that different areas became much more arid. Um, and there's also in increased evidence of global cooling, which was greatest in the highest latitudes, leading to a stronger meridional uh, gradient. Therefore, you know, you have stronger pole to equator temperature gradients, which is going to affect your uh, atmospheric circulation and will uh, potentially cause uh, greater um, trade winds, taking continental dust in, into the ocean, forming uh, sort of an increased nutrient input. So those were some of the things we thought, hey, well, all of this does kind of coincide time-wise. Um, but then, you know, in terms of the redistribution of nutrients um, and how this might fit into, you know, the heterogeneity we see in the LMBB. So around the same time, there's the late Miocene carbon isotope shift, which is a, a really big one per mil carbon isotope shift between about just after eight to just after seven million years. And 
this is also when we see actually sort of near modern uh, gradients between uh, the Atlantic and the Pacific appear and has always been attributed to deep sea circulation changes. Now, these deep sea circulation changes would have also affected the distribution of nutrients, so that could contribute to the arrival of nutrients at different locations at different times and some of the heterogeneity arising due to that. And um, yeah, I also already mentioned the temperature and the aridity. Now, the thing there is, although the timing was, was um, certainly similar in the temperature change, there was also a lot of heterogeneity in those records. The cooling was greatest in high latitudes. Uh, aridity uh, started at different times in different locations. Those regional differences may, be, uh, may also lead to regional differences in the in input into the ocean as well as an overall increase. So that could also uh, yeah, be an explanation as to why there's such a heterogeneity in the regional expression of the LMBB. Yeah, and cyclostratigraphy will be a, a key tool in order to disentangle all those evolutions, transitions, events on a highly resolved timeline. Definitely. Yeah, and, and so on the cyclostratigraphy you developed for 1264, do you see an astronomical rhythm in the productivity itself during the bloom, during the biogenic bloom, or does productivity just max out through, throughout the entire bloom? No, there's definitely um, a lot of change. Uh, so there's, um, well, so this also coincides with this switch to stronger obliquity influence. So that is part of the influence uh, that we see on the, on the shorter term variability. Surprisingly, I think in the Eastern Equatorial Pacific, eccentricity was a, a little bit more strongly influential there. Um, but both records also show quite strong 400,000 year influence, but, but not completely stable. So there's a lot left to look at there. And even though there's a lot of similarities between when these peaks occur and these peaks, especially in, in sort of higher carbonate and mass accumulation rates, seem to coincide with with the 400,000 year forcing. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what similarities they are, whether the carbon cycle 400k forcing comes into that, because that's also very strong in the carbon isotopes, and whether then the regional difference is perhaps more expressed in the shorter term cyclicity. But we, at the moment, still only really have these two records where we can look at that. So more research is needed. Exactly. As we get more records, we can uh, pick apart more things. <laughs> cool. Thank you, Anna Joy. At this point, I would also like to thank our audience for listening to this fifth episode of Cyclopod. I really enjoyed talking to Anna Joy about her Climate of the Past paper on an amazing archive for past climate change from the Oligocene until today. In that paper, Anna Joy explains in much detail how she constructed a time-continuous and orbitally resolved record for Walvis Ridge in the South Atlantic that spans the last 30 million years. This record is like a history book of what our planet went through since the Oligocene. Periods of ice sheet expansion in the Arctic, the development of C4 plants and aridification, climate change, and so on. Really, Anna Joy proved once again that she is a world-class stratigrapher and a world-class paleoceanographer. Thank you so much for contributing to this podcast. Thanks, David. It was, uh, I had great fun. <laughs> For more updates and information on cyclostatigraphy, or if you'd like to reach out, please visit us on www.cyclostatigraphy.org. See you later.